Good evening and welcome everybody to this first talk in our newly started Philosophy at LSE lecture series. Philosophy at LSE is a consortium of the Forum for European Philosophy, the CPNSS, the Center for the Philosophy of the Natural and the Social Sciences, and the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method here at LSE. The lecture series aims at the general public, at students, and at alumni. Our speaker tonight is Professor Luke Bowmans. He's the head of the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Methods, and he's also the coordinator of the MSc program in Philosophy and Public Policy. He's interested in philosophy and public policy, in moral psychology, and in the philosophy of probability. Tonight he will talk to us about green social advertising, an issue which is located at the intersection of public policy, philosophy, and moral psychology. Thank you very much, Suzanne. All right, thank you all for, for coming. Um, so here is what I would like to do. Well, first, I'm going to try to position myself so that I'm not constantly in the way here. Let's just whirl this one out over there. Um, so, I, I'd like to think about what the aims are of green social advertisements. You know, what are green social advertisers? What are they after? Uh, what sort of people are doing it? And, um, and that will give us a little bit of diversity. And then I just want to show you some examples. So, you know, just that we have a sense of what we're talking about, <coughs> all right? And then the question is, how is it that they are actually trying to achieve those aims? And I'm going to try to get a bit of a categorization going of how it is that a green social advertisement advertiser can go about achieving the aims that they're putting forward. Um, then we'll look at some further questions. We think about truth in social advertising. We think about uh, viewer sensitivities, respecting viewer sensitivities. And we think about you know, the difficult issue of autonomy. And by that time, my guess is that it will be 7 o'clock and we won't say anything about nudge anymore. But we'll see how it goes. Okay? Um, so let's get started. So now clearly, let's not get cynical about this. I mean, clearly, social advertisers, and I sort of want to think about that as, as wide as possible. Okay. That is all the kind of things that we see on TV, on billboards, and so on, trying to induce us to change our attitudes, to change our behavior when it comes to environmental issues. All right? But there are distinctions, actually, in you know, the various agents involved. You know, you have cases where it's the government that's involved. The government is putting out some kind of campaign, keep the streets clean, or whatever. Okay? So that's one case. So what you're after? Well, you're after behavioral and attitudinal change, but you also want to please your voters. You want to keep your taxes down, because whatever people are going to do themselves, you don't have to do anymore, being the government, and so on. Then you have NGOs in the picture. And NGOs have a particular remit. I'm thinking about Greenpeace. World Wildlife Fund, they have a particular remit, and they need to satisfy their donors. Right? 
So then you just have advertisement agencies, and that's maybe some social <coughs> advertising, you know, narrowly conceived, right? You have advertisement agencies, and the way I understand it is that an advertisement agency will often do some social advertising in downtimes pro bono. They will charge for it, and what they're trying to do is, you know, what they're after really is to get a lion income. Okay, they can get a line of income. That's a good thing because that gets some, you know, visibility to their company, and then they can get high-paying clients. All right. So your advertisement advertisement agency is after a few lines of income to increase its visibility, so they can, can get some high-paying clients rather than just a social advertisement that they do pro bono sometimes, of course. Okay. Then there are companies, companies who are just they are trying to increase their sales by jumping on the bandwagon of climate change, of uh, environmental issues. And then you also have cases where you just have artists in the picture who see this whole thing as a venue for artistic expression. Right? And so I think you know you get various players, various agents in the picture. I'd say the central aim is to bring about behavioral and attitudinal change, right? But there's definitely all these various agents all have their, what shall we say, sub-aims, okay? Uh, their own interests, the things that they're after. So let's look at a couple of examples here. So just have to know what we're talking about. And I hope this is going to work. We have a whole different system that's coming down on us. Let's see if we can get this to work. Underneath a Philly skyline, newspapers and soda cans decorate the next of our neighborhoods. But see, this litter can't filter into our painting. Our picture is color. White love running in hue. Sometimes taking a stand means taking a new view. So let's sing to the sun without waste up to our waist. We can't wait for no one else to clean up what's on our plate. See, this is a people's call to the older and the youthful. These streets are reflections of ourselves. Must be beautiful. Right. Okay, so this is uh, the Philadelphia Recycling Office. And, uh, you know, the idea is to, to keep the litter off the street. On Litter Philadelphia is uh, the name of the campaign. Um, let's take a look here at the NGO. Yeah. Let's see if it comes through. Yeah, okay. Whoops. Only that one. Okay, so this is a, a World Wildlife Fund here, where you see uh, what happens when you what happens to Tarzan when you cut down the the, the rainforest. All right, it's a wonderful wonderful idea. They're just full of of, uh, of good humor. Um, these World Wildlife Fund Fund guys. Um, so right, advertisement <coughs> agency. Yeah. So this one actually, well let me just show it to you. Just show a little chunk and then I'll tell you more about it. The yearly charity event, Music for Life, organized by radio station Studio Brussels and the Red Cross, was this year all about drinkable water. Every 15 seconds, a child dies due to lack of drinkable water. Studio Brussels wanted to raise money to mend this global problem. We started from the insight that every TV host has a glass of water. It's so normal that nobody notices it. 
Until we started this guerrilla campaign. Er zullen weer tranen van geluk vloeien. Heel wat bekende gasten komen langs. En standaard hadden gezegd, wij doen niet meer mee met het tv-contract, zolang er geen verandering is in de Belgische competitie. Ja. Oei. <lacht> dus, uh, even de daad erin oppakken. Uh, Zou dat eigenlijk iets voor jou zijn, zo'n carrière? Want het, het is nogal stress, hè, op zo'n podium staan en niet acteren. Het is inderdaad ook... <lacht> het, is een, het, is een, het is een ander vak.
told me it's out there, the Pacific vortex, paradise. You may be thinking, hey, shut up and enjoy the sunset, you idiot. Well, I don't care what you think. No one needs me here anymore, not even my maker. Do you know her by chance? Have you seen her? gave me my independence. Sub aims, their own interests. 
to play with. Um, so let me think a little bit. Oops, yep, that's good. All right. So let me think a little bit now about how it is that social advertisers succeed in their goals or what it is that they're trying to do and so on. So I think in a minority of cases, it's quite uncontroversial. That is, you want to bring about some behavioral change, some attitudinal change, just by giving information. Right? You say, here's something you know, right? I'm giving you this information, you say, oh, now that I know that, um, I'm going to act differently. Right? So that's, but I think that's a minority of cases. In the majority of cases, I think what's happening is something much more subtle. Instead of going back to um, what Socrates had to say about weakness of the will. So Socrates has this view that weakness of the will really doesn't exist. Um, what's really happening is that you simply don't know the good. If you were to know the good, you would do the good. All right? Uh, but acrasia, weakness of the will, doesn't exist. It's always a matter of lack of knowledge. To know what is the right thing to do and not to do it doesn't exist. Right? Now, Aristotle reacts to that and he says, well, you know, not quite. I mean, it seems to me that there are cases of weakness of the will. And, and how does that work then? Well, Aristotle says, I grant you, Socrates, that these are cases in which we have partial knowledge only. And then he tries sort of in various ways to describe what it is to have partial knowledge. He says, we know things the way, or we know the good, the way actors know their lines. All right. We know things, but we don't have conviction about the matter. We know things, but our knowledge is not, or our knowledge is latent sleep, our knowledge is dormant. Or we know certain things, we know the good, but we don't use our knowledge inferentially. That is, we don't infer from our knowledge what we should do. And there's a gap between what we know and how we act. These are all the things that he says, all right? I mean, and it's all sort of, you know, trying to circle around a particular idea, this idea of partial knowledge, right? And I think, in a way, that that's interesting when we think about advertisement. Because I think in many cases, what happens is that, indeed, we do already have the relevant belief. But we just need to make it salient. We do already have the relevant knowledge. But we just need to make it salient. And that's what the advertisement does to us. It increases the saliency of our latent beliefs, of our partial beliefs. Okay? I mean, the, difference between knowledge and beliefs is not, not important here. Or what it also does is you know, it tries to shape our beliefs in some way or other. All right? Sometimes we haven't formed our opinion about a certain issue, and so the advertisement will try to shape our beliefs. Now, these are different things, of course. I mean, I think in some cases what's happening is, yeah, we already believe that, no problem. But the advertisement comes in in order to make it salient, and to make it such that we use it in an inferential way. Using it in an inferential way means that we infer from it how we should behave. And that was what was lacking before. 
I believed that all right, but I didn't act on it. Now, after seeing the advertisement, I will come to act on it. Okay? So that's one thing. And then the other thing is just that, you know, sometimes we don't have any beliefs with respect to this particular issue, and the advertisement will come to shape our beliefs. But now, I want to make a distinction here between how these things are done. I think in some cases what we get is something like effective engagements. You know, so the advertisement is trying to involve our emotions in some way or other. In other cases, it's through behavioral engagement. And I'll explain to you what that is. It makes, the advertisement makes us do something. And once we start doing that, then we will come to change our attitudes, uh, behavior in the future as well. And then the third type of, of, of um, means <coughs> towards behavioral or attitudinal change is a cognitive engagement. Um, that's the whole cognitive dissonance story. Let me just postpone that for a second. So I just want you to keep this particular scheme in mind. So the minority of cases, new info. Then the majority of cases, it's not so much about providing new info, but it's about waking up our dormant beliefs, about adding saliency to latent beliefs. And that we do in three different ways, by working our emotions, by working our behavior, or by working our cognition. Right? And now, what's on this slide is sort of going to take me half an hour to go through all the details, yeah, to go through every category and give you examples of that. Okay? So let's do that. Minority of cases, the simple cases, really. So there's a famous Greenpeace red list, which you can access on the web. And if you have any questions about whether you should um, you know, get uh, get haddock from the fish shop next weekend, then go take a look at the Greenpeace Red List and see, um, you know, whether there's any problem with North Sea haddock or whatever, um, whether it's going extinct or not, and so on. And I think, you know, this is sort of interesting. There's another one from the Marine Stewardship Council, exactly the same thing. You got red, orange, green, the green fish you can eat, the red fish, you know, highly problematic, right? To say something like, well, I've been hearing that there's all this problem with tuna, should I quit eating tuna? And then you look at this list and you say, oh, the bluefin tuna is in the red, but the albacore is no problem and the yellowfin is no problem, so, you know, I can go on eating my tuna, okay? So, you know, that's in a way just providing you information, you know where to go, and uh, it brings about certain behavioral change, but it's just a matter of providing information. Yeah, it's telling me just which fish are going extinct and which fish are not going extinct. And then there are cases that are somewhat like that, but there is an additional consideration here. That is that you shape the information in such a way that it's likely to affect the person's behavior. So you think of you know, all these stats about, about smoking and why smoking is bad for you. You know, various diseases, percentages that increase when you smoke and so on. 
But I thought that this one in particular, now this is not green social advertisement, this is a smoking anti-smoking campaign, but I thought this was such a nice example of providing information that is tailored to the concerns of the agent. I mean, when do many people try to quit smoking? Around the age of 30 or something, right? Now, at the age of 30, apparently, survival to the age of 60, when you're a non-smoker, is five chances out of six. Right? When you're a smoker, it's one chance out of two. Right? Now, these are clever stats. First, the choice of the age of 30, when so many people are thinking about maybe I should quit smoking. And then a half, that's like flipping a coin. You know what that's all about. And this is like casting a die. Oh, I die if a six comes out. Not a big deal. Five chances out of six, I'll be okay. What? Like a coin, flipping a coin. That's terrible, you know. And this is very likely to come up or whatever. Right? So it's a very nice choice of statistics in a way. It gives new information, but it's information that is really tailored to the particular concerns of the agent. All right? All right, good. So that's providing new information. I think that's quite and problematic. I think what's more difficult is to think about all this business of increasing the saliency of the underlying beliefs of your behavior and your attitude, increasing the saliency of these beliefs through various means. Right? And the straightforward way of doing this is just working on our acts, working on our emotions. And uh, I mean, talking about smoking, I remember that my, my dad stopped smoking when he was visiting my granduncle, I was about 12 years old then, who was home from, from the hospital for Christmas, dying of lung cancer, and he didn't have morphine at all. And just the screams coming from the other room was sufficient to make him quit smoking. And it's like, yeah, what did he learn there? He didn't learn anything new. Did he think that lung cancer was a picnic? Of course he didn't think lung cancer was a picnic. He knew all there was to know, but it's the exposure to screams coming from the other room from a loved one that makes you change your actions, right? So here is, uh, here is the Canada seal hunt. I'm a vegetarian, okay? So close your eyes if you don't want to see it. Canada's annual seal hunt is the largest slaughter of marine mammals on the planet. Every year, hundreds of thousands of baby seals are killed so that their skins can be made into coats, collars, cuffs, and trinkets. More than 330,000 seals were killed last year alone. It is heartbreaking to watch sealers bludgeon baby seals with clubs, drag conscious seals across the ice with boat hooks, and toss dead and dying animals into heaps. Even more heartbreaking is the fact that almost all of these seals are killed when they are only three months old or younger. Many of them have not yet... All right. Um, so, you know, once again, you know, did you think that seal hunting was a picnic for the seals? <laughs> of course not. What did you learn? Did you learn anything new? Did you thought it was a bloodless affair? I don't think so. All right. You didn't learn anything new. Um, but maybe it made your beliefs a bit more salient. Um, 
through working your emotions, exposing you to these pictures. So that was a, a PETA campaign, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. So here is actually the 2010 Liris d'Or winner, the you know, Golden Irish, so you know, the photography prize. Tommaso Asili, absolutely wonderful. See the little lambs here looking into the way that they will be, will be um, uh, transformed in, uh, in a few minutes, all right? So, you know, looking into the carcasses. Um, and again, if that doesn't make you a vegetarian, I don't know what will. So. Okay, now here's an interesting campaign by Nestle. And it's different because <coughs> when you see, I mean, here it gave you some sort of factual information to mess with your emotions, right? But this one is different in a way in that it plays in the same gruesomeness, but it's purely fictional. So. Do it to 
today, I would ask a bunch of students at the LSE, and I would say, who's against freeze the fees? Who's in favor of freeze the fees? All right? And people say, okay, I'm in favor, I'm against, and this and that, right? And now I tell them, listen, what I want you to do is a speech that goes against your attitudes, right? So if you're in favor um, of freeze the fees, then you have to do a speech against freeze the fees, and the other, freeze the fees, and then the other way around. Okay? So you have to speak against your attitudes, against the attitudes that you actually have. And then you know, they vary the conditions. Sometimes they simply have to do this with no audience. Sometimes they have to do it with an audience. Sometimes the audience actually says, oh yeah, that's right. I'm changing my mind on this issue and so on. Right? Um, and then they ask the subjects whether they have actually changed their position after doing their speech. Right? Now, the rational thing to say is to say something like, no, no way. I mean, you know, you just asked me to do this, right? It's kind of like a debating class. That's all that happens here, right? Of course, I still believe what I used to believe before. But the curious thing is that some people actually did change their attitudes. And what's even more curious is that there, are two, there were two categories. Yeah? Some people were paid, let's say, $5 to do this experiment. And other people were paid $50 to do this experiment. All right? And now you look at the group of people who were paid $5, group of people who were paid $50, and you compare how many of them actually changed their attitudes. What's interesting is that the group of people who were well paid didn't change their attitudes. They just simply said the rational thing. That is, you know, why would I change my attitudes here? I used to believe that before. Now it's experiment. Big deal. All right? Of course, I still believe what I believed before. But the people who were paid $5, they actually do say that they changed their attitudes. I say, well, why is that? Well, in a way, these people can't make sense of their behavior. They go like, what? You know, I stood there a whole hour talking about you know, that we shouldn't freeze the fees. And people listen to me, and they change their mind. And I did that all for a lousy $5. That's not a good explanation for my agency. I need an explanation for why I did that, because the $5 is not going to do it. Well, maybe I really believe that stuff. So they change their <laughs> beliefs, OK? They change their beliefs, they change their attitudes, because they're only paid five dollars. The other guys say, well, the other guys just say, well, no problem, I know why I did that. You know, I got a hands of fifty dollars out of this. They have an explanation for what they did, and they don't change their beliefs, their attitudes. Okay? So um, how does this work now in the case of green advertisements? <coughs> see that one of my links is gone, but I can tell you what it's all about. You know, this is this, this famous campaign that started in Sydney, where everybody turns the lights off, right? And then it's spread all over the world. Um, and you say, you know, how does, how does that work, right? Well, I mean, it seems to me that what's happening in this case is that you say, oh, turning off the lights, that's kind of cool. Everybody's turning off the lights, you know? <coughs>
do that and say, oh, it's exciting to be part of the crowd. I mean, that's not good enough, all right? I mean, you have to say something to the effect that, oh, I care about these environmental issues. Now, once you've said that, you get up to do real change, behavioral change, which hopefully is long-lasting. <coughs> um, so I think that sort of, here you're working straightforwardly on behavior, do something cool, you know, be part of the crowd, and then people step back, they try to give an explanation of why they did that, and that's what brings about the behavioral and attitudinal change. Um, BP campaign, this may be a bit the same thing. Um, so, you know, what, the, what this campaign did is they invited people to come up with alternative logos for BP, right? So here you see the BP logo sinking in in, uh, in a sea of oil, right? Um, and it's still the same thing, you know, engage people, get them to do things, and that's the kind of thing that will change their behavior. So that's the behavioral change. Now, cognition, you know, working straight on cognition in order to change the saliency of your partial beliefs, right? How does this work? Well, there's this interesting theory that comes to us from Immanuel Kant about humor, about the nature of humor. And Kant thought that the nature of humor was really creating and resolving incongruities, that somehow that's what makes the human species laugh. You know, that is the creation and the resolving of incongruity. Um, now, there's various theories of humor, but I think certain items of humor really do fit this pattern. And so let me give you an example here. So here is a campaign, Ice Bomb. The sea level is increasing. We are all in danger. All right? And so you see this ice bomb. And I think this is, I mean, it's really boring to explain a joke, right? I know that, right? But I think that this is kind of what's happening here. You know, this fits Kant's theory of humor in a way. Because you go like, ice? Ice doesn't have anything to do with bombs, right? What does that have to do with this? You know, incongruity, right? And then you say, well, oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting because you think of the polar caps. Polar caps are ice. And when they melt, then all that ice gets in the sea, the sea level will be <coughs> rising, and then places like Bangladesh will be affected as if a bomb fell on it. Oh, I see what they're doing. Okay, well, that's kind of right. Now, of course, once you've explained it, you know, nothing as boring as explaining a joke, right? But I think that this is sort of an interesting example of Kant's view of humor. And it seems to me that what's happening with those campaigns is precisely playing on that. That is, they give you an incongruity, you look at it, you do your clever thing, I mean, all subconscious, do your clever thing, you laugh a little bit, but in the meantime, you've worked something out. You resolve that incongruity in absorbing the humor. And of course, once you've absorbed, once you've resolved that incongruity, then the social advertiser got you to the point where they want you to be. 
That is that now you are concerned about the polar caps melting because you worked your way to it yourself. And maybe you already had some partial belief to that effect because you believed the science, but it didn't affect your behavior. But now what you get is that that partial belief has gained saliency because you worked out this joke. Okay? So you're working straightforwardly on people's cognition, on people's partial beliefs, making them salient through working their way through the incongruity of the joke. Okay? I think in a way the same happened with the successful campaign of the the boy that wants water that I showed you before. Um, you know, you start talking about this thing. You say, did you see that? You know, the kid running into the studio. What was that all about? Oh, wow. You know, no water in Africa. Okay. No clean water. Well, you know, we, we have no problem with this. Readily accessible. You just sort of start working your way through it. And, and that then raises your awareness makes that part, I mean, you already had a partial belief. Of course you knew that there were problems with clean drinking water in this world, right? But because you worked your way through it yourself, talked about it with your mates and so on, you worked your way through it yourself, and now you're concerned about that thing, right? It's in resolving that incongruity, you know, that, that little boy doesn't belong there. What's that little boy doing there? And so on. You work out the incongruity, and that kind of brings you to where the social advertiser wants you to be. That is, the partial belief now has become salient. And hopefully, that will change your behavior and attitudes and give 3.2 million to the campaign. Okay? So I think that's the way these work. So, yeah, so just sort of going back here, you know. I think if we're trying to understand how social advertisement works, it's important to see that sometimes it's a matter of just giving information, but quite often it's not a matter <coughs> of giving information. We knew all there was to know before we saw the advertisement. Then what did it do? Well, it made our partial beliefs salient, it made it inferential, it made it such that it changed our behavior and our attitudes. We draw inferences now from those beliefs. How do you do that? By working the emotions around it, by going straight to our behavior and then getting cognitive dissonance to kick in, or by putting incongruities, humor style, in front of us, which we then work out and the upshot of that is that the important partial belief thereby becomes salient because we ourselves work out the incongruity. All right. So let me say something about further questions in this neighborhood. Truth. Truth in advertisement. Well, how much truth is there to be found in advertisement? Carlsberg, probably the best beer in the world. You know, is anybody going to say, you can't do that? That's not true. Right? <laughs> Come on, okay, advertisement, right? But, you know, truth in social advertisement, I think this is somewhat problematic because we have somewhat higher expectations. It's not, well, sometimes it's companies like Diesel putting these things out. But 
sort of expect a bit more. I get really irritated at these um, campaigns against um, alcohol consumption in the UK. I mean, the latest one had all of these diseases that you could get even if you were a moderate drinker, like brain tumor. You know, you had this sort of um, x-ray vision of a person and then you have the brain tumor. You go like, where is the evidence? Okay, but the percentage of brain tumors goes up with moderate drinking. Like, I'd like to see it, and then you read the fine print, and you know, there doesn't seem to be too much there. But here is a case of green social advertisement that I thought was interesting. This is from Carbon Trust, you might have seen it. Switching off all non essential equipment in an office for one night will save enough energy to run a small car for 100 miles. Right? I don't know what that's supposed to do because you know when I look at this, I might just go like, "Oh, so there's no problem driving my car. I'm going to drive my car more." <laughs> right? You go both ways, right? <laughs> but I I asked them what the evidential basis for this was, and if you go deep in their website, you actually can find it for all of their um, for all of their campaigns, for all of their slogans. And here's how they do it. So overnight is 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. That's fine, right? 16 hours. But in your office, you have 18 lights burning, okay? Well, you know, that's a pretty big office. And you also have about 30 PCs going, okay? And a laser printer, photocopier, that's all right. Um, and all of that is supposed to be equivalent to driving a car that consumes 10 miles a liter. I don't, I don't know whether that's reasonable. But you know, you see how you do it, right? This is not just your the office of, of an academic with one desk, all right? This is 30 PCs going and uh, 18 lights going. I showed this to a physicist, and he still said no way. But I'm not going to go into the details here, right now. <laughs> I, I just thought it was interesting what constituted an office. Um, okay, so you know, I think it was interesting. <coughs> questions here is sort of the standards of truth that you want to hold the social advertising to, right? I mean, especially if these are advertisement companies who are putting these things out, they're sort of used to the standards of truth that the general public expects from advertisements, okay? Um, and it's not clear that when you're working for the government, when you're working for a health campaign, when you're working for um, environmental issues that the standards of truth shouldn't be a little bit more stringent that we would expect a bit more so anyway respect for viewer sensitivities right you might say you know do I really need to see baby seals being slaughtered like that I mean do I really need to to see that and and that's kind of an interesting question. Do you need to see that when you're wearing a fur coat? Right? Now, I think that there's two perspectives on this coming from the philosophical tradition. And Kant had an interesting view in the doctrine of virtue. Let me just read it because it might be a bit small for back there. While it's not in itself a duty to experience sadness in sympathy with others, it is a duty to participate actively in the fate of others. Hence, we have an indirect duty to cultivate the sympathetic, natural, aesthetic feelings in us 
and to use them as so many means to participating from moral principles and from feeling appropriate to these principles. Thus it is our duty not to avoid places where we shall find the poor, not to shun sick rooms or debtors' prisons in order to avoid painful sympathetic feelings that we cannot guard against, to turn our eyes when a pita commercial is playing, right? Yeah. It's the same thing, right? Um, so this sort of seems to suggest that, hey, you know, expose yourself to the suffering of the world, including the baby seals, maybe. Now, Plato's Republic actually gives us a bit of a different story. So, Leontius is um, uh, running around and he sees that uh, he sees some some corpses like you know outside of the walls of the city, and he's very eager to look at the corpses and you know sort of has this internal struggle whether he should look at these corpses or not. He noticed the bodies of some criminals lying on the ground with the executioner standing by them. He wanted to go and look at them, but at the same time he was disgusted and tried to turn away. He struggled for some time and covered his eyes, but at last the desire was too much for him. Opening his eyes wide, he ran up to the bodies and cried to his eyes, there you are, curse you, is what he's saying to his eyes, right? Feast yourself now on this lovely sight, all right? So this is sort of the issue of, you know, the shameful gaze in a way, right? And it's not clear that anything is gained by the shameful gaze. Now, I think actually that as an individual, you have this kind of emotional economy to deal with, right? And you just have to, you know, know thyself, really. That is that, you know, you do want to see behavioral change. You do want to see attitudinal change in yourself. But you have to weigh how much you have to expose yourself to the suffering of the world to keep a balance between the shameful gaze on the one hand and between, you know, informing yourself of, of, of the cruelty of the world, right? And that balance can be different for different people, you know. Some people really do need to work up their sympathy by exposing themselves to the suffering, but others get too excited, you know, and get pulled into the shameful days, right? So it's sort of like you have to work your own emotional economy in order to find the right balance between working up your sympathy through exposing yourself to suffering and you know, being subjected to this shameful gaze. And that's very difficult. Now, I think the same problem occurs in photojournalism, right? And in photojournalism, you got the advantage that you, as the consumer, chooses, you as the consumer, choose your newspaper, right? And you say, you know, it's sort of a contract between you and the newspaper that we're the kind of newspaper that will go this far in showing the suffering of the world, right? Um, and you have a contract in a way. You know, if they go beyond that, um, then, uh, then you know, you have sort of a reason to complain and write a, a letter from the reader, okay? But you don't want to see those pictures, right? But of course, you know, social advertisement is different in a way because it's out there on the street. It's in your face, all right? And if it's that kind of advertisement, I think, um, I mean, if, if that's the, the way the social advertiser works, then I think they are, to a greater extent, constrained by respecting sensitivities of the viewer. All right, let me say one 
more thing here. Yeah, just a couple of questions that I'm throwing at you. So, you know, that's the comparison to photojournalism. I actually thought it was interesting to, you know, sort of fictional versus factual gruesomeness, right? That is, you know, the Kit Kat commercial. You know, you could say, well, that Kit Kat commercial, come on, I mean, you don't need to do this stuff. You're not even showing anything, you know, about the way the world is there. I mean, I understand PETA with the baby seals, but, you know, you don't have to have anybody biting in a, you know, seeing orangutan finger. On the other hand, you know, so you can say, it's sort of gratuitous in a way. But on the other hand, it's also a bit cartoonish. The fictional seems to be not as bad because it's a bit of cartoonish. But on the other hand, it seems to be worse because it seems to be a bit gratuitous to do these things. What's gained by doing that, right? Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting issue. Another issue that I think is interesting to think about is that you know we would object if somebody refused to know truths that are relevant to their behavior, right? Um, you know, if I, you know, you're eating a a, a, a dull pineapple, and and you say, I don't want to know where these pineapples come from. I don't want to know. Um, you know, what's happening in Costa Rica in order to get those pineapples. You say, no, you've got to inform yourself. You've got to have a duty to know the things that pertain to your behavior, right? But at the same time, I'm not sure whether that also holds for our emotions. That is, is it the case that I need to expose myself fully to, you know, baby seals being slaughtered and so on, do I need to, do I have a duty to get a sort of full emotional engagement with these issues um, before I can wear my fur coat, right? Now, I think this is a tricky issue. I mean, I mean, think about, suppose you say I'm pro-choice, right? I believe in second trimester uh, abortions, right? Now, is it the case that in order to really hang on to this position and say it in all sincerity that I have to be willing to watch a movie about what it is like to have a second trimester abortion. I don't think so. I don't think so. I can turn my back and say I don't want to know anything about the details, about you know the the level of development of the fetus. That I think I have to say if I'm really standing by this position. Uh, that I think I, I, I need to uh, fully inform myself about. But to actually see the blood and gore, I don't need to do that. And it's kind of interesting, because it seems like we have a duty to be fully cognitively engaged with our agency, but we don't have a duty to be fully emotionally engaged with the background conditions for our agency. And, you know, it's kind of paradoxical in a way. It's kind of paradoxical and something that's worth thinking about. Just leaving it as an open question. Um, autonomy. Autonomy is really the million dollar question. And, you know, is it the case that an advertiser messes with our autonomy? The two famous quotes are from Aristotle and Mill, and they tell us exactly the opposite thing. 
Aristotle says the legislator makes its citizens good by habituating them. And this is the wish of every legislator. Correct habituation distinguishes a good political system from a bad one. Mill says he who lets the world, okay, and the political system as well, choose his plan of life for him has no need of any other faculty than the ape-like one of imitation. Habituation is pretty close. It is possible that he might be guided in some good path, maybe by Aristotelian habituation, but what will be his comparative worth as a human being, right? So, you know, strongly pushing for autonomy. Here is where your liberalism lies. Strongly pushing for paternalism. Here is where your perfectionism lies in political theory, right? And then, of course, the question is, you know, how does that relate to social advertisement, the nanny state, nudge, there is nudge, how does that relate? And I think, I think it's easy to do the following. We know what we want, we know what we don't want. That is, the Greenpeace Red List, great, because before I go to the fish store, I like to check about, you know, whether that yellow fin tuna is really still fine to eat. Okay? So that's perfectly fine. We don't have any problem with that. Now, that's perfectly acceptable. Now, to go completely the other side of the spectrum, you can take the most worthy cause, yeah, environmental issues, climate change, um, stop smoking, or whatever. But I think most people would be very dissatisfied if we were to put some subliminal images in your favorite TV program trying to change your behavior with regard to you know, whatever lofty goal you might have in mind. Now, subliminal images are tricky because you know, there is some evidence that this was a big story um, coming from the 50s and the 60s, but there was never any proper experimental results to the effect that you know, if you show a um, picture of happy people drinking coke as a subliminal image in a movie that all of a sudden your sale of coke is going to go up, you know. But philosophers don't have any problem with that. We just say, suppose subliminal images would work, right? We wouldn't like it, all right? Um, it's quite controversial, actually. There's, it's an interesting, interesting history and interesting literature um, where this whole notion of subliminal images came from. But... Um, but you know we wouldn't like it, and I think however lofty the goal is, we wouldn't like it, right? That we were being pushed around by subliminal images. Now it seems to me that that's easy. Don't want that. We do want that, but everything in between. The question is sort of, well, how much much does that mess with our autonomy, right? And we would like to have some criterion to the effect that, well, here are the kind of things that are autonomy respecting, and here are the kind of things that are autonomy violating. And then once we got that criterion, then we can say, now for particular cases of green social advertisement, the beta commercial, the KitKat commercial, and so on, we would like to know whether it is autonomy respecting. And that is extremely difficult, extremely difficult to do. I just threw a couple of things out here. Um, 
that might be candidates. I mean, one thing that you could say is that once you've changed your behavior, right, then you look back and you say self-reflectively, that's fine. I don't have any problem with somebody changing my behavior like that. So you endorse the process by which the behavior of change came about. <coughs> but is that a good idea? I don't know. I think, you know, typically we are pretty opaque to ourselves. Why do we always all of a sudden have to get on our high horse and talk about, you know, transparency when it comes to advertisement when 90% of the time we're rationalizing our agency and so on. So, you know, is that a good criterion? I don't know. Another thing you could say is that, well, if it's the case that the change that is brought about is sort of very local, now I'm doing this particular thing, right? Um, this very sort of localized thing in the way of, of, of you know, environmental awareness, right? But I'm not doing any of these other things. And it's sort of like, your attitudes are, you know, incoherent in a way, right? And they're also not very stable. Um, uh, it's easy to, you know, once the commercial is gone, or once there's a new fad around, that's where you're going to jump on. So you sort of end up with unstable and incoherent attitudes. That's what's no good about it. But if it's the case that you bring about sort of a coherent change in attitudes, then that's okay. Maybe that would work as a criterion. But, you know, once again, I mean, it seems to me that kind of insisting on rationality and the coherence of our attitudes is also asking for a lot. Um, evidence-based, does it have to be evidence-based? You know, there I think, you know, the question is, well, yeah, but what sort of evidence-based do we want? Is PETA okay? Yeah, there's the baby seals. Is, PETA, is that okay, those baby seals? That's evidence. Well, that's not the kind of evidence we want. So that's, that's a tricky one to throw out. So I'm sort of leaving this all as an open question. Um, I don't quite know what it is to have autonomy respecting and autonomy violating types of advertisement. Various criteria are there, but it's not clear exactly what the what makes what makes for the difference? So I think that that gets me through it. Yeah, good, terrific. So okay, good. Let's have some questions. Oh. Yes, uh, Suzanne, take the questions. Yes, the gentleman. Uh, everything you said is, is about uh, the pains and the problems and the difficulties of why why we should follow a green lifestyle and the, you said nothing about the pleasures uh, yeah okay and to, to take a, a an example that pe people 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 generally accept that we need more cyclists on the road and and so many people especially women don't don't take up the opportunity to go cycling because they think the roads are too dangerous and, and that is so unbalanced not just not just women lots of men as well it, 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 it's ignoring the, the 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 other danger that a lack of physical exercise is very unhealthy it, it's a pain but 
Well, you're concentrating on the pains, and you, you're not. You're not. We need advertising that's that's pointing out that, that is saliently pointing out the the advantages and the pleasures of, of leading a green lifestyle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know the the. the um the Sydney campaign was a bit like that, right? For this, you know, turn of the lights. Um, and uh, I mean, that very much builds on this sort of collective action and the joy that comes out of this collection, collective action of, of, of less energy consumption, turning of the lights collectively, right? Um, so, yeah. Um, but definitely, I think, you know, PETA is different, right? I mean, baby seals, no good. Uh, but I think um, that a number of these campaigns do really play on, you know, let's do this together and there's something joyful about it. The one that I opened up with, with the drummer and the, the girl doing the poetry, um, I mean, it's very much about, you know, the joy of keeping Philadelphia clean, right? So I, I do think that these kind of, um, these kind of campaigns are there as well. Sometimes the emotions that are being engaged are emotions to the effect that if you continue doing what you're doing, terrible things have to happen in the world. Baby seals being killed. But others also focus on, look, the kind of target behavior is such that it's very joy producing. Yeah? I don't Suzanne, I'm going to have no, you keep authority here. Okay, it was a related one. It was okay. going to be Gibbons made a point that he felt advertising was all very negative on the subject of climate change. Mm -hmm. Is that more effective? Is sort of presenting people with arguments to change, all bad stuff will happen, more effective than there are benefits <coughs> of changing your behavior, good things will happen? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess there is a difference between you know, what kind of good things are happening, right? I mean, there is a difference between there is the joy of collective renewal, yeah? Now, you could say, well, it's kind of a pain to turn up the light. It's still <laughs> negative in a way. But doing it all together, that's what gives you the joy, right? So that's one case. And I guess the other case would be, um, you know, there's a, it's not just, the joy doesn't just come from being collectively engaged in the campaign. The joy just comes from our lifestyle being different, right? That lifestyle itself is an enjoyable lifestyle. Sustainable lifestyle is an enjoyable lifestyle. And, and I, guess, um, I guess that's a, a different issue. And maybe there is not enough campaigning that builds on that. I mean, there is campaigning that builds on the joy of doing it together, right? Um, also a kind of blitz spirit, sort of all of us together. Exactly, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, can we hear your question? Um, I think so much on that that um, I've certainly found from my work that selling a positive um, and not an anti-negative, even a real positive, it's much easier to engage people, both emotionally and intellectually, if you give them a positive
change. Um, <coughs> I mean, you want people to stop doing what they're doing because if they continue doing that, things will be bad, right? So, so it's not so much like, you know, well, if you stop smoking, then let's say you can run twice as far, right? You can do all these things better than before. But it's hard to say if you quit polluting, um, well, yeah, then you can continue what we're doing right now in the way of the consequences, right? It's really about the avoidance of bad consequences. It's much trickier to say that good consequences will come about that are not there right now, unless you think of the good consequences as being involved in the movement, yeah. right? That's one thing, that's clear, and that's, that they definitely do. But it's hard to point to good consequences that are different from the situation that we have right now. But can I just come back quickly on that? And that yeah. does very much time with what you said earlier, in as yeah. much that what most, I mean, if you ask the people that are involved in 7,347 working groups for the 350 campaign last weekend on Sunday, actually, most of it, and honestly, it goes back to your other point, it's an afterthought.
Yeah, I mean, I started thinking about all this stuff in connection with nurture, right? And now, not just Baylor and Sunstein, and there, you know, let me just give there two standard examples that come up all the time. Many of you will have heard them before. One is cafeteria, that is, you want the people in your company to eat healthy. And so what you do is you put the healthy food in the beginning of the line at eye level. And then people just start eating, you know, start taking the apples and the oranges and whatever instead of the cake, right? And, and then hopefully they get used to that, they come to appreciate it and so on, right? So that's an availability bias that's being exploited. That's one case. Um, the other case is they want the people to save more for their pensions, right? And so instead of saying, you know, you want to put some more money into your pension fund, no, what you do is you say, look, you're going to get a raise six months from now, your yearly raise, right? How about putting that money into your pension fund? And people said, well, yeah, that's perfectly fine. I mean, there's a bit of discounting going on. Ah, money in the future, who cares about that? And secondly, they didn't have it in their hands yet, right? There's this availability bias. Um, they didn't have it in their hands yet. Once they have it in their hands, they say, no way, I couldn't possibly part with this raise. I need it, I need it, right? But if you say six months before they're going to get it, then they're willing to put it into their pension funds, right? So you're using a discounting <coughs> bias, you're using, um, an you're using an endowment effect in order to get people to save more. Um, now, what did I think about this? Well. It seemed to me that if you were to tell people, along with that letter, that you know you want to put your money six months from now in your pension fund, you would give them the whole explanation of the psychological biases. Then they would say, "Hmm, is that what I'm doing? I don't think so, right?" Or if you would put up a sign in the front of the, you know, the the line in the cafeteria saying, "We've now put the healthy food in front." at eye level, hoping that you will take more of that stuff, then people would say, where's the cake here, right? <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it seems like you need to have a certain opacity, you know, a certain opaqueness, um, a certain non-transparency in order for those mechanisms to work. At the same time, you say, well, then how is it different from subliminal images? I mean, are we just not being manipulated here? Well, I think that there is a difference. And the difference is something like this. In the case of subliminal images, you know, unless you don't fancy machinery, yeah, taking all of the, the, the little screens apart, right? There's no way you can detect it. But in the case of, of nudge and much of the social advertisement, you know, you know you're being influenced left and right. And you know that you're not gonna catch it every time. But if you are willing to be very perceptive, then you can catch it, right? And, and I think that there has to be sort of an in-principle transparency in the picture. It has to be possible for viewers to say, hmm, now I see what they're doing, right? And you read Persuasion and you get a bit smarter of how they're doing it and that's all fine, right? Um, but I, I do think it's, it's quite worrisome to exploit these irrational, these biases of irrationality. And in order to keep that clean, it needs to be the case that a perceptive individual would be able to uncover it, right? Now, 
one thing that proponents of social advertising nudge and so on will tell you is that well people are bombarded by those kind of techniques left and right in order to go to McDonald's and in order to consume you know lots of goods in a manner that's completely unsustainable how do you want us to fight back through you know clean rationality I don't think it's gonna work right so in a way you know, you can sort of see that if you want to fight back, you know, you use, in a way, the same sort of wisdom and the same sort of machinery, right? Um, but nonetheless, I do feel that for these techniques to remain acceptable, however much they're in the interest of the individual, future generations, society, and so on, right? In order for those techniques to remain acceptable, it's got to be the case that you have kind of an in-principle transparency, right? And then I, I also do think that even if that's the case, some of these advertisements are just um, beyond the pale. Um, you know, like I, I, I remember driving, I, I often drive from southern to northern Minnesota, and you go through a lot of poor areas. Poor areas <coughs> means there is no economic activity, social ad billboards are very cheap, Social advertisers comes in. What does this mean in the states? A lot of religious advertisement, fetuses, fetuses, fetuses all over the place. Anti-abortion advertisement, right? It's like, come on, you know. How many do I need to see her, right? <laughs> right? I mean, this is the same, that's the sort of concern I think, right? Yeah. Do we have time for a couple of minutes? So. I think we have ten more minutes. Then.
embrace more of the positive yeah. results of particular communal action and the rest of it, because um, in the medium to longer term, that's more likely to basically work, selling in the positive, because there's always a sort of a sell-by date on the once, you know, it's very, very, very bad taste, but once you've seen a seal club once, you, you, you've seen the club, you know what I mean, you, you've only got one opportunity to shop, because once you've shopped and ain't worked, many ways there's not much further to go, so, so you, you naturally have to try a more, let's say, positive and longer term, longer term approach. Um,
gets a little trickier when you know we're talking about causes that we don't support but that do involve a bit of blood and gore, right? Now, just think about a just war. I mean, suppose we're engaged in a just war. Well, you know, there is such a thing as a just war, I think, and we might be engaged. We could be engaged in one at some point, right? Um, now, of course, you could use a lot of images of the terrible things that are happening on the battlefield in order to, you know, change people's opinion about being involved in the just war on the just side, right? Or I think the same thing holds, um, you know, for uh, um, for for choice movement, right? That is that. Um, you know, is it, would it really be permissible for the pro-life movement to buy prime time TV and show second trimester abortions in all of, all, all of their detail? Do we really have to be able to comfortably watch this to honestly say that we are for a choice? I don't think so. I really don't think so, right? I mean, I think that it would be wrong to say, I don't want to know about fetal development, but I'm pro-choice. That would be wrong. I mean, you've got to inform yourself, right? Especially if you have a public voice, right? But I don't think that you have to be willing to expose yourself. So if it's the case that I can't say, we have to be willing to expose yourself when it comes to causes, you know, that, I mean, like the pro-choice issue, or like the just war issue, then I'm not sure I can say the same thing about the seals, right? I mean, it seems like we should be constrained by the same kind of norms of what is acceptable. So I'm not sure that 